You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Excited to be with you this morning and to continue walking through the gospel of of Mark together. Again, if you are new with us, we actually have... um, I guess we just called them Mark journals, where it's the gospel of Mark with with some blank pages that you can take notes on. Uh, And if you're new with us, you don't have one of those yet, or you've been with us, but you didn't grab one. There's actually some of those on the the welcome table as well. You don't have to pay for them, just grab them. Uh, After the series, as I've joked with before, I'll check and see if you took notes. And if you didn't, you owe me five bucks. That's how that works. Uh, I'm excited this morning as well to have some of my family here. My mom and my sister are here. I will not point them out. I will not make them stand out. But I thought this would be a great time to just walk through some family grievances that I've had. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. We won't do that. We won't do that. Uh, guys, many of you like a good courtroom drama. Do any of you guys like courtroom dramas or movies? What, what are some of the ones that you en- you've enjoyed over the years? Law and Order. Law and Order. Yeah. Good one. A few good men. Oh, Yeah. I can stand the truth. Was that a few good men? No, a few good men. Yeah, no, it was. Yeah. What, what other, some other ones? Liar, liar. Liar, <laughs> <laughs> uh, You know, knowing the source, that's, that's about right. Yeah. What's that? Judge Judy. Yeah. Yeah, is that drama, comedy? I'm not sure what that is. Absolutely. Cousin Vinny, a classic. <laughs> Uh, one, one, of the fi- one of the phrases that, I, that you, you'll always hear in a, in a court drama is permission to approach. Permission to approach the bench, permission to, to deal with a witness, permission to approach, all that, that kind of stuff. Um, now, one of the common ways that we often have heard, many of us, if you've grown up in the church, uh, or maybe if you're even new to the faith, the way that we describe uh, what it means to be a Christian or what Jesus has done for us is often, we often hear courtroom kind of language. And many of you have probably heard the illustration of... Um, the sinner walking before um, the bench, walking in front of God, the judge, and us being convicted of our sin, and then Jesus stepping in and saying, yes, it's true, you are guilty of all these things, and it's true he's guilty of all these things, and then he kind of pushes you out of the side, and he says, but I'll take the punishment. It's not wrong. Um, Often, though, if we, if we, we play that out, and that is one way that the New Testament describes what, what has happened, that Jesus has paid our debt, that there is forgiveness. These are, these are like, this is market language of getting rid of debt and, and, and court language of getting rid of debt. But often, what, sometimes what we might be left with, if that's the only, way, only side we've looked at, we have this kind of two-dimensional God with his arms crossed, and we can only think of him a judge, as a judge, and we have a really hard time. And, and many of us, if we've had a difficult time with our own fathers, we might have a difficult time figuring out, how do you get a loving God out of that? How do you get a loving father out of that? Well, one of the important things as we look through the gospel of Mark and any of the gospels is John is, is, Jesus is trying to proclaim, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says that in John 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. And then, sorry, and then in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The apostle Paul makes it, makes it very clear. If you want to see the love of God for you, look at Jesus. If you want to, want to understand, in Romans, we have Romans chapter 8 up there as well. Yeah, Romans chapter 8 says, no, in, in all these things, one of the most beautiful verses to try to just understand the depth of the love that God has for us. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else 
in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus our Lord. So what you see displayed in Jesus, that's the kind of love that God has for you. That's the, the framework for how we ought to approach God in prayer, how we approach God in, in our need, in our despair. So my question for you this morning as we look at, at the text is, how do you approach God? And, I don't, and we can think of that in a few ways. How do I approach him through devotion? I, I, I approach him through prayer. There's practices that we have in place. But how do you approach him? How do you approach God? How do you feel when you approach God? It's like, I'm sorry, here I am again kind of thing. Is it, I, is it, is it Will down here going like this? That's how I approach God. That was awesome. I was just afraid he was going to get dizzy. And at one point, he looked up at everybody and said, I'm going to make everybody dizzy. Well, that was the best part. <laughs> How do you approach God? Where, where's your heart at? Where's your, is it an obligation or is it your pleasure? Is it easy or is it very difficult to approach God because of what we've imagined him to be and what we've imagined him to think of us? Every religion is asking that question, how do we approach God? How do we approach God? Do we, do we do it so with our head bowed, whipping our back, fully purging ourselves of sin before we approach, and then we have a right? How does the finite approach the infinite? And it really comes down to how we imagine God and what we imagine God thinks of us. Is that not true in life? How we approach people is often relying on how we, th what they, we think they think of us. Are we going to have to build ourselves up a lot? Are we going to have to come in low? <laughs> And, 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 and humble. And like, like most, we can kind of fall into two different ill-informed sides. We, one, we can think of God as kind of a bloodthirsty God just kind of waiting for us to mess up so he can throw some thunder. Or God is kind of a loving, spiritual dude. And just if you need something, just check in. But don't worry about holiness. Don't worry about righteousness. Just whenever you need him, check in. And he's, he's there for you. He's, the, he's, gonna, he's a man upstairs. Well, we're at a, a shift in, this, in the gospel of Mark right now. Mark is, is, is telling uh, an aspect of the story where, where Jesus is now going to step away from Jewish believers. Uh, throughout the first couple chapters, Jesus has been dealing with people who, who know the gospel or, or, or know the, the story that God has been telling ever since Adam and Eve and through Abraham and the children of Israel. People who feel like they're in the family of God, who've been waiting for a Messiah, who've been reading over the Old Testament prophets, going, when are we going to see this? When are we going to see this? And now Jesus is stepping away from that area. And it, I think we have a, a, a map up here. Oh, that is, sorry, <laughs> that is small. So you can see where the Sea of Galilee is in the middle. Jesus has been doing most of his ministry there, all full of Jewish um, religious Jews, but now you'll see it's going up to the, the northwest there, up to a town called Tyre. This is not a, a Jewish town. This is full of, of Greeks and, and pagans, and Jesus goes there, we'll see in a moment, to get away from it all, and it doesn't last at all. <laughs> the minute Jesus is there, word gets out, and people approach him. And the question will be, how is Jesus, if you're a Christ follower, if you're a disciple who's following Jesus to, to Tyre, the question is going to be, how is Jesus going to deal with these filthy outsiders? How is this holy man who's been sending demons running, who's been healing people, who's been spending his time proclaiming the kingdom of God, the God of the Israelites, how is he now going to deal with people who we know are on the outside, who we know are dirty, filthy pagans? And some people, when they step into a church, maybe you come in this morning, you go, how is God going to deal 
when maybe you were looking at other people going, how's God going to deal with those filthy pagans? And some of you might have walked in and said, how is, how is God even going to accept me today? He knows what I've done this week, and I'm going to come and I'm going to sing worship now? How are you approaching God this morning? What's your mindset of God this morning? And as, as we'll see in this text, a, a, a woman approaches him who has a, a daughter who's demon-possessed. There's a, what about a, this deaf-mute man who is definitely outside of the Jewish religion? How will Jesus respond to these people? I'm going to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, if you haven't yet, chapter 7. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. And I'm going to be reading from verses 24 through to the end of the chapter in verse uh, 37. And out of respect for God's word, if you're able, Angie, you can stay seated. But other people, if you could stand if you're able. Starting at verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, Mark's favorite word, immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Notice the way she's approaching. Now the woman was a Gentile, that means anyone who's not Jewish, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs." But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may, go, may, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. So he was heading back to the Sea of Galilee, past the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Decapolis. It was called that because it was a collection of ten kind of city-states. City and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. Literally, he was mute. He could not speak. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looked up to heaven. He sighed and said to him, Ephaphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealous they proclaimed it. Could you imagine telling a mute who's never been able to speak and who's just been healed, don't say anything. <laughs> that just doesn't seem fair. Uh, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Jesus, speak to us this morning. Many of us, many of us have shown up here this morning feeling unheard and feeling like we can't hear you. Many of us approach you this morning feeling like a dog who's just received scraps. Feeling that when we approach you, we really have no right to approach and ask anything of you. Some of us may be coming here this morning with, with a bit of pride. Like, I've done pretty good. Just bless me. God, I pray for however we come this morning, I pray that you would soften our hearts and speak to us. And if we need to be lifted up because we've, we felt so broken and unloved, then Jesus, lift us up. If we come in high and with pride, then through the gospel, bring us down to level ground. 
We thank you for the, the leveling ground of the cross, and I pray you would do work through it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys can be seated. It's not by mistake that this story falls here. If you were here with us last week, we were talking about the Pharisees who were drawing lines to say, you're in. If you're like us, you will be in. If you follow all the traditions that we follow, you will be in. They were doing their best to make sure everyone knew that they needed to associate with the Pharisees and be, be extremely religious. Now, if you were to ask the Pharisees about this woman, what do you think they would say? Because there was a high, there's a religious hierarchy that the Pharisees had come up with. There's God. They put him above them. That's good. And then there were the Pharisees and everyone who listened to the Pharisees. And then there were the religious Jews who did pretty good but didn't follow all the traditions of the Pharisees. And then there was just your common Jew. And then there were foreigners. Foreigners were the bottom of the pile. And they weren't just the bottom. of the, they, were, they were below the ground. They were unworthy of God's love. And for Mark, the lesson regarding who is in and who is out is not over. That, that's not just the first, this is a continuation of that debate that's going on. If Jesus has erased the lines that the Pharisees drew, saying, you thought people were out that I am welcoming in, what, what does that look like? What will that look like as the gospel moves out from Jerusalem? Will Jesus welcome any old Jew in? Will he welcome in any old foreigner, those who won't even, don't even believe that there is a God? Well, there's a few things that I think we can, we can learn from this text, which, I th which are good for all of us this morning. One is this, that, that there is an invitation for us to approach Jesus with confidence. There is this invitation to approach him with confidence. She says, Jesus, please have mercy on my daughter and release her from this bondage. And, 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 and in, in one of Jesus' most confusing statements... He, he responds in this very surprising way that doesn't really work with our really nice Jesus, meek and mild at first glance. It seems pretty harsh. This is the language that Jesus, that you're supposed to say for the Pharisees. Don't say this to this poor woman whose daughter is suffering. It'd be a lot easier to sell to Jesus who doesn't say things like this. But he doesn't use that kind of language. He says in verse 27, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And you would think her response could be one of fine and leaving. Leaving angry, leaving broken. And most people who read this on first glance, they go, that, why is Jesus insulting this woman that way? It sounds like he's calling this woman and her daughter dogs that you might throw scraps at, or you might throw garbage at. And in our society that accepts dogs into our homes, I know some of you are cat people. We won't even get into that. That's a whole, like literally a whole sermon. <laughs> I mean, we, we live in a society that some people refer to their pets as fur babies. That's the kind of love and affection that, that makes my stomach turn. But, and it was, so, so, it is important to know that the Jewish community and the community surrounding them were not a dog-loving community as a whole. They were, often dogs were thought of as you would always have that along with living on the streets or living out in the wild, in the dumps. They were thieves. They were wild and they were dirty. You would toss rocks at them. And for Jews, they would often look at people who were not Jewish and call them dogs and insult them with dogs. 
as, as comparing them to dogs. Now, what's interesting is, is that when Jesus uses the word dog here, he's not using the word dog that often is used as an insult. He's using it as a domesticated, welcomed-in puppy. It's very interesting. It's not the common word. It's this idea of a dog who hangs out, and when you're done eating, and many of you who have dogs, fur babies, you, you'll let them come up to the table afterwards, and you'll go, here you go. Or you put the... We, you always have to be careful in my house because you cannot just grab any bowl that looks clean and use it. Because <laughs> it'll be put, you all, if you have a dog, you know what I'm saying. You, you put it down when you're done, they finish it off, and they are, they're not, sad. the dog is not saying, seriously, that's all you, they are pumped that they get to finish that off. But what'll happen in my home once in a while is that that'll happen and then someone will just go put it on the counter. And you're like, well, I mean, fortunately, it doesn't go right in the cupboard, which I wouldn't put past some people in my home, but <laughs> you have to be careful with that. But it is interesting that Jesus is not using a, a derogatory form of the word for dog. He is, call, he is referring to them as kind of these puppies that would be welcomed in and taken care of. He basically calls this woman a puppy, not an ignored street dog. And he says there, there's an order. What is Jesus is saying is that there's an order here. I, I feed the Jews first. I am the Jewish Messiah. They have been waiting for me. They have been looking for me. Their prophets have been proclaiming me. So that, and, then, and sure enough, that is where Jesus shows up first among the Jews. These are my chosen people. I am their Messiah. After that message, and we see this played out in the Great Commission. After Jerusalem, Samaria, it moves out to the world. He says, I'm their Messiah first. After the kingdom is given to them, you will be given food as well. It sounds dismissive, but it's not. In fact, it is, it is a setup for a very important lesson. It is a setup for a fantastic lesson that we might miss if we quickly glance over it. Jesus basically says, let me first feed those who have been expecting me for thousands of years, and then I will offer you food as well. I, you will not be ignored. You will be taken care of. And, he says, and she basically says, uh, yeah, okay, <laughs> I get that there's an order here. You, you are Jewish, and so you're going to serve the Jews first and then the rest. But here's the thing, Jesus. I'm here now. I am here right now. I am ready. I know you have food. I know you have the bread of life. I am ready to eat now. I need it. I am here, and I get it. So rather than wait, can you not allow some of this food to trickle down to me? That is what she's asking for, and Jesus gave her a great setup for that. Can you let me, as I'm here, on behalf of my daughter, can you let this kingdom that you're proclaiming trickle down to us? I know I'm not one of the children of God, but I see life here and I want it. Give me what I don't have coming to me on the basis of your goodness. Now, an accurate translation of, of Jesus' response to her is, is basically, good answer. That's literally, the Greek has this kind of excited, like that was a, that was good that was a good response kind of thing. You know, on Family Feud, and they'll go, good answer, good answer, good answer. <laughs> Jesus was doing a bit more than that. Jesus has just delivered his most confrontational, what it seems like, words, and she has thrown them right back at him. She had some confidence. She approached him with confidence, demonstrating a heart oriented towards God. 
She is the good soil that we read about in Mark chapter 4, verse 20. Those who were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and it bears fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. It's not by accident. Ever since Jesus told the parable of the good soil in, in Mark chapter 4 that we've seen story after story of good soil and bad soil, good soil and bad soil. Everyone hearing the gospel, not understanding it, or hearing it and rejecting it. People who see but don't perceive. People who hear but don't understand. And then there are those who hear and who accept. And here's the thing. She seems to get the gospel better than the disciples. This foreigner recognizes that Jesus offers something that even the Pharisees did not understand. This is the first time in the gospel that a parable has not had to be explained to somebody. It's the first time where you don't then see a second scene of going, what did that mean? Or Jesus going, I see you don't get it. So that this woman understand exactly the metaphor and exactly the parable, and then she threw it back to him with one of these. <laughs> she got it immediately. She was the first person in Mark's account to actually understand what Jesus was saying. And rather than walk away when Jesus says it, rather than be defeated, understanding that she is on the, the outside and saying, okay, fine, she responds by pushing back and asking for more of Jesus. Tim Keller says this. Tim Keller's a great Presbyterian minister. He says, there are two ways to fail to let Jesus be your savior. One is to be being too proud, having a superiority complex, not, not accept his challenge. But the other is through an inferiority complex, being so self-absorbed that you say, I'm just so awful that God couldn't love me and not accept his offer. And that would be a tragedy. Jesus came to save the sick. If you come here broken, spiritually, emotionally sick, you are the reason Jesus came, lived, died, and has been resurrected. We could say it this way. We can, only, we can be so blinded by the depth of our need that we reject the means of our healing. Don't let that happen. As the gospel reaches out and declares, all can be forgiven. All of you are seen and loved and pursued by God. We can say, yeah, but I'm the exception. I got stuff that nobody knows about. God can't, God's love cannot be that deep. And the cross would declare, which we are going to celebrate next week, the cross would declare Jesus proclaiming, God proclaiming, what more can I do? What, what, what more can I do to proclaim my full acceptance? I've thrown it all on my shoulders. I've taken all the punishment so that you don't have to. I've declared my love through the Son. What more can I show you? So we can approach with confidence. And we can approach, and this is what the cross proclaims, accepted. That's why we can approach with confidence. Because we approach already accepted. The evidence has already been laid out, believe me. And you are accepted. The cross tells us that we are already pursued. The rescue plan is already in place. Do not ignore the salvation that Jesus offers. There's a, an old horrible joke. About, well, those are the only ones I have, I know. Of a man who's, whose ship went down, and he's treading water, and he's praying, Jesus, save me, Jesus, save me. And a, and a, and a, and a raft comes by. The guy says, get on. The guy says, no, Jesus is going to save me. Jesus is going to save me. And then a heli rescue helicopter comes by and starts dropping. No, no, I'm good. Jesus is going to save me. Jesus is going to save me. And then the Coast Guard comes by. says, get in the boat. No, 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 I, I pray Jesus is going to save me. And the guy drowns. <laughs> he goes to heaven and says, Jesus, I said, 
I, I, I asked for you to save me. And she said, I sent you a raft. I sent you a helicopter. I sent you the Coast Guard. What, what else do you need? It's there for you. Will you take it? It's there for you. Jesus said, I sent you a raft, a helicopter, a Coast Guard. Many of us, when it, when it comes to our sin, we're happy to wallow in the need, but not accept the free gift of forgiveness and grace that Jesus wants to offer us. American revivalist Jonathan Edwards, he said it this way. He said, you say it is hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but also too low opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is wrong. What he's saying is that I don't deserve your mercy. I don't deserve it, and therefore I can't accept it. It's the, it's the same as saying I'm too good for it. It's just the flip side of that. It doesn't apply to me. I'm beyond it. I'm beyond your mercy. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. With confidence. You understand you can go before God with confidence? With confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This woman knew what she wanted. She knew why she came, and she was determined to get it. Well, next we read of this deaf and mute man, a man who cannot hear, a man who cannot speak. In a community where everything relied on verbal communication, there wasn't as much reading going on as we have today. Everything in community was oral stories, and how you, you found out news not by reading. Your, you weren't going like this. You were hearing it from others. You were communicating about it with others. The, the seclusion that this man must have felt would have been horrible. And the language used here is very interesting, and it's not by accident. There seems to be an emotional element to what Jesus does here. In, in verse 34, it says, And looking up to heaven, after he's, he's stuck his finger in his ear and on his tongue, he sighed. Jesus sighed. And he said to him, Ephaphatha, that is, be opened. Now the word for sighed here in verse 30 is more than just a simple, let's, let's pray. It is this, heavy, burdened sigh, this empathetic hurt that Jesus has here. And I think we get a glimpse of Jesus' heart. He's not walking around. Jesus did not walk around the ancient world or float around the ancient world untouched by the pain and the suffering that was going on. He felt it. And I mean before the cross. He felt it. He would see what was going on, and it was a burden. It made him cry on many occasions. As the perfect God-man, he, 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 he's broken both by our rejection of him, but also by the effects of that rejection on us. And we see that here in verse 32. They, they brought this man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. That phrase there, the phrase deaf and had a speech impediment, is one word in the Greek. Seems like a lot to put into one word, but deaf and had a speech impediment is one word. And if you're all writing it down, it's moglilalos. I know you're all going to be using it this week. And it's used in only one other place in all of Scripture, in Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he's proclaiming a time when God is going to show up in a big way. This is a text that Jews would have known because they were looking for this to happen. They were waiting for this kind of stuff to happen because they would know it would mean that God's Messiah had shown up. It would indicate that God was there. And it's the exact same 
phrase used in Isaiah 35, verses 4 to 6, where it says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Beautiful language. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. In Jesus' day, they knew this text and they were waiting for it to show up. Now catch this because we need to notice this. Jesus, it says in Isaiah that God is coming with vengeance and recompense. But here's the thing, that vengeance and that recompense is not for you. A lot of us read texts like that and we go, yeah, that's that sin that's in my life and he's going to come and he's going to smite. No, 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 that, that is not for you. Picture instead a hero God coming to destroy sin and its power over you. That is the, the language that's going on. And he's coming to show his love, his vengeance, his recompense against sin and death by healing and bringing creation back to what it was meant to be. It's against the pain and the burden that sin has brought. And so when Jesus sighs, he is feeling the burden of humanity and it breaks his heart. We all know that feeling and that, that pain that we have when we look at people's lives and we see the trajectory they're on. And we go, I, I know where that leads. And I've shared with you before, I've sat with people who are making really bad choices, and I've had to say to them, you are not the exception to the rule. This kind of, these kinds of choices lead in one direction. And I've wept over people who have said, yeah, I don't care, and they've just gone for it. And, and we've had to watch their lives kind of not be what they could be. This last week, many of you know, I sent my son on a plane to uh, Cape and Ray in England, and when we were leaving, those of you who know me, I'm a weeper. Don't worry about it, right? Get over it. Shut up. <laughs> you laughing at me? Um, and I remember leaving, I was leaving the airport on Wednesday, and, you know, I was a little weepy. And, but something else happened in my body that I wasn't expecting, and that's I just kind of kept trying to grab my breath. Um, so I wasn't tearing up, but I was walking around to go... And I was thinking through everything that could possibly happen to my son, every way he could get lost on a train, every way that he might feel kind of pressure on himself, and it may, I felt it physically. And many of you who are parents of children older than me, I know you know what that feels like. My love for him, my concern, my emotions combined with my body, and they were taking over my body and kind of causing this response. You know what this tells us about Jesus when he sighs like that is that he's not disconnected from your pain. He's not disconnected from our pain. He's not way out there and just doesn't get our burden. And just he's going to snap his fingers and take care of it. It's why Jesus looked at Jerusalem in in Luke chapter 19 and wept over the city, knowing where its sin would lead. We have the text up there. I'm not going to read it. Sorry. It's why he wept at the tomb of Lazarus, even as he was about to raise him from the dead, because he was looking at the effects of sin and death, and he knew that even though he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, that's only going to last so long. All the people that Jesus was healing, that was only going to last so long, because they were all pointing to a future event of Jesus' return, when these would be the norm. But he knew that for a time, people were still going to suffer. You and I were still going to suffer. That sigh says, I get it, and I empathize, I know and in John eleven thirty five, 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, he looked at Lazarus and he wept. These are not 
completely removed from what Paul says in Romans 8, 26, just earlier than the passage we, we read earlier. In, Luke, sorry, in, in Romans 8, 26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit of God helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. How? With groanings too deep for words. We do not have a God who stands off somewhere and is on the sidelines. It's why he looks at you and I, and he weeps when we say, I got this. It's why he weeps when we say, I'm just going to try it my way. Because he knows where that leads. And he went to the cross so we would not have to go there. Jesus, in these instances, is groaning in empathy for his creation. It was a reflection of Jesus' heart to see creation healed and, and experience renewal But maybe also it was a reminder of Jesus, and we would see it culminate on the night that he would be betrayed, knowing that what he would walk through in order for God's vengeance and recompense to come and for sin and death to be defeated for all time. He knew that to bring recompense, to bring God's vengeance, was to absorb the sin and death in his own body on the cross. That's why Jesus, when Jesus sighs, we know he gets it. That's why when we look at God and we look at our faith, we, don't say, we can never say that we have a God who stands off somewhere, who does not understand our pain. And yes, he would heal as he did throughout the Gospels and as he still does today, I believe. And he would display the love of God, but there would still be those who would reject him in his day and in our day. So I think the final invitation that I'll leave you with this morning We can approach with confidence. We can approach accepted. But the final request for us this morning, the final invitation for us this morning is just to approach. (laughs) Lay down our excuses. Lay down the I'm not good enough. Lay down the there's all sorts of things in my closet at home, in my emotional, my spiritual life, my physical life that are dark, that my family doesn't know about, that my best friends don't know about, that nobody knows but God And I lay all of that down. That's what the gospel is. Lay all of that down. Let Christ absorb it at the cross and simply approach. Approach. That's where the idea of blind faith. Just approach. Come to him. I guarantee it's a better story than the one you can just make up on the fly. We've all been on those small treadmills in our life. And Jesus wants to say, stop those treadmills. I know where those treadmills lead. That's why he sighed, because he knew we were going to still run after some of those treadmills. Get tired out. When Mark's readers first saw these words, they would be reminded that centuries had passed since this promise of Isaiah, but now it had arrived in the person of Jesus. That those who could not hear, those who could not speak, would now be heard. They would hear God. They would engage with God through Jesus. That he, that Jesus would become an outcast as he would in Jerusalem, that he would be kicked out of the city, that he would be pushed away from the table so that we, like the Syrophoenician woman, would be welcomed to the table to eat. We welcomed into the family. Those who had to settle for crumbs would be welcomed in to the table. You do not need to settle. Tim Keller says this again. He says, On the cross, the child of God was thrown away, cast away from the table without a crumb, so that those of us who are not children of God could be adopted and brought in. 
As the Gospel of John says, when we, when we come to him, when Jesus came so that all of us could be called children of the living God. The child of God became a rejected dog so that we could become sons and daughters at his table. And because Jesus identified like that with us, we now know why, that we, why we can approach him. The Son of God became a dog so that we dogs could be brought to the table. He became mute. He went to the cross without saying a word, Scripture tells us. Like a lamb being led to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. He became quiet and slowly took the punishment that you and I deserve so that now we can use our mouths to proclaim that he is king, to proclaim his goodness, to proclaim our salvation. Church, sisters, brothers, those seen and loved and pursued by God, you are not beyond his eye, you are not beyond his love, you are not beyond his forgiveness, you are not beyond his healing. And many of us who come in here, we need healing from our past. We need healing from what we're walking in in the present. Healing from labels that others have put on us. Labels that we've allowed to sink deep and tattoo themselves to our skin. And we don't get rid of them. You are not beyond his acceptance. And Jesus offers that today. Healing for broken, rejected hearts. The promise of hope of ultimate healing at his return. And so he invites us. He invites us to repentance. He invites us to this, this acceptance. He invites us to approach. For the Seraphonician woman, she, she didn't know what the outcome would necessarily be. For the deaf and mute man and his friends, they, they didn't know. But you and I, we stand on this side of the cross. We know where it's going. We know about the new life. We know that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits for you and I. Read 1 Corinthians 15. And the, the beautiful picture that St. Paul paints there. That we can have faith, we can have trust in our future and all of Jesus' promises because of his resurrection that proclaimed God's stamp of approval on him and Jesus' power over sin and death and all that it's laid on us. Resurrection declared the death of death itself and it proclaims the validity of Jesus' claims to heal all of creation one day. I'm going to ask you guys to bow your heads. Jesus, many of us approach here differently today. I'm thankful for words in Scripture that say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes, whoever, with no caveat, no, no exceptions to that, that you've given the right for all to become children of the living God, everyone, whomever, everyone, that whoever comes to you, whoever the Father sends to you, you will not send away. Whomever. And so whatever we think we can label ourselves with, whatever has sunk so deep into our hearts and minds, you dismiss with the cross. The pits that we've dug, that maybe we've tried to bury our sin in, and they get deeper and deeper and deeper, you dismiss it, you fill it, you remove it with the cross. We can't out-sin your forgiveness. We can't out-reject your grace and your pursuing of us. And so, God, I pray through your spirit you would do a work in those who walk in here broken and burdened today. I pray they would be able to leave differently. And so right now, maybe you just, under your breath or in your heart, you need to say, Jesus, forgive me. It's that simple. Forgive me. I've tried to do this my own way. I've allowed this to get a hold of me. Forgive me.
You don't need to dance around. You don't need to repeat a prayer over and over. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we come to God, confess our sins, we are seen as clean before God the Father because of Jesus. Jesus, we have no claim outside of you. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And so we humbly come to you. We thank you for welcoming us to the table. We thank you for welcoming us into your family. Do some healing in us for those of us who have felt rejected, for those of us who have felt on the outside. And may the truth of the gospel, the truth of the cross, the truth of your love and forgiveness, I pray it would seep deeply into our hearts and minds. And we would leave here animated by the joy and the hope and the identity that you give us because of your life, death, and resurrection. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.